Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on tech disruption and how it is driving their decision making and strategy. My name is Sunil Rajgopal, software analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence and independent search arm at Bloomberg. And I have with me Jay Krebs, CEO and co-founder at Confluent a software platform that is focused on bringing solutions for today's hyper-connected, hyper-speed, and hyper-intelligent data world. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. We have uh, lots to cover, and I'm curious to learn more. So let's jump right in. I believe you started to build Apache Kafka with a small team at LinkedIn, and you built the basic architecture in about three-plus months. Can you unpack what drove the team to come up with Apache Kafka and what led you to start Confluent? Yeah, yeah, so that's right. Uh, Confluent is based in many ways around an open source project, Kafka, and it came out of LinkedIn. And um, I worked there, I was a you know senior engineer and, and manager and uh, ran a lot of the data architecture for, for different parts of LinkedIn. And the problem we had at the time that I was there was, yeah, we had all this amazing data, but it was all kind of locked up in some data store somewhere. There was a bunch of different pieces of software and different applications and different databases. And um, they each had some, you know, part of the puzzle, some data that they'd stored. And, you know, LinkedIn wanted to be able to build these very, you know, data rich, intelligent features on top of this. Um, but it was really hard to get the data. And if we did, usually the only way to build on it was then, you know, kind of extract it at the end of the day, shove it into some kind of data lake or data warehousing, run some big batch process that might take, you know, hours or even all night, and then spit out some new results the next day. And you know, so it was a little bit weird. Here you have this digital business that um, is inherently kind of 24 by seven, but it's doing these big batch processes as if this was, you know, the days of uh, mainframes or something like that. So, you know, we, we were trying to figure out why you know, why is this the case? How could we make this better? And, um, you, you know, a lot of the ideas we came, up, came back to had to do with this idea of just really treating data as a kind of stream. Like a lot of the thinking in the world of databases and data systems, it kind of came out of the idea of storage. And as a result, in a company, you kind of have a bunch of these data stores that you know, effectively have their own little pile of data. And you would see this in most companies today. You know, you would have different custom applications and SaaS applications and different systems that all have their part of the picture. But in many ways, what companies are trying to do is build software experiences that span, you know, many parts of the company now that kind of put it all together. And that that involves really being able to harness everything you have. And so you know, the idea we had was instead of just thinking about the stored data, really allow it to flow between all these systems and, you know, react to what was happening as it happened, you know, really have some user signing up or, you know, somebody clicking on something, have that trigger other activity or actions that would allow us to act on it and bring some of the smart uses of data into real time. And so that was, that was the original motivation was get all the data around between different systems and let us act on it more quickly. And that was how uh, Kafka originally was used. It was an internal infrastructure layer to do that and do it at really large scale, you know, for data centers around the world for a big social network. And then we released it as an open source project. And sure enough, you know, a bunch of companies started to use it in the same way, you know, really make that part of their business, make it kind of part of their 
architecture. And there's really been kind of a whole movement around, you know, streaming, stream processing, really kind of a different way of thinking about data as something that's kind of continuously being generated and continuously being reacted to instead of just something that's kind of semi-static and stored. Right. From what I understand, you play a vital role in real-time data streaming and processing as most of these processes happen below the surface or user interface level, it is difficult to understand the complexity of these tasks. Would you have a simple example that demonstrates the complexity of these real-time data streaming and processing platforms and why Confluent is important? Yeah, yeah, I think, a, I think an example that's really easy for people to understand is maybe in retail. So if you think about, you know, how did a retailer work maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was a little bit like I described, it's a bit of a batch process. Each store would sell some stuff and it would record all the sales that it had. And at the end of the day, you would kind of ship all that data back to some central place. And then you would you know, really do some processing of that data. Maybe a day later, you might have a picture of the inventory that you used to have on hand and what sold. But of course, by that time, it's all kind of a bit out of date. And then maybe, you know, at the end of the week, you would make some decisions around, you know, shipping things from distribution centers to restock. And maybe at the end of the month, you might look at pricing and see discounting and promotions and see what had happened. You know, the what's happened maybe in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years has been really a whole transformation of that. Something that was very slow and batch oriented has become very real time. So now if you're a retailer, you got to have an app. There has to be a way of seeing what's in the store right now. Of course, that doesn't work if you only knew what was there a few days ago. And all the supporting processes in a retailer are now much more dynamic and data-driven, right? It's no longer that, you know, you wait to the end of the month to figure out if the promotion worked, like you have a much more real-time feedback loop. And even a lot of the experiences for customers are more omnichannel. So, so what, you know, what does that have to do with streaming? Well, in, uh, the olden days, you know, you could think about that data flow as being kind of shipping some big file out of each store. Hey, this is what's sold. And, you know, at the end of the day, process all these files. Uh, you know, this is kind of not that different from how databases work. Instead of a file, maybe you have a table of, you know, what's sold. The, the new idea, though, is instead of having this kind of discrete, you know, days sales, think of it as continuous. You know, think about a stream of what's selling all the time. And think about that inventory as this kind of continuous process that keeps track of what's been shipped and arrived and what sold, what went out the door. And then you can think of a lot of these processes of promotion and, and other activities as being derived off that. And so it's kind of taking these things that happened at a point in time and making them something that's continuous in real time. And that's, that's a big part of taking um, any kind of software and attaching it into the operation of a business because most businesses... You know, they kind of happen all the time. It's like a real world activity that's continuous. It's not something that just happens at night, right? So, so that's a really simple example of streaming, you know, streaming the sales all to, you know, have a complete picture and then stream processing this idea of, you know, maintaining uh, inventory shipments, promotions continuously and in real time. That's, that's a good, you know, pretty simple example to understand. And how does uh, Confluent fit into this real time data streaming and processing work? Yeah, yeah. So we, we provide the infrastructure for doing this. So in much the same way that a database would be the kind of supporting infrastructure for storing data and querying it, you know, to actually capture these streams, to be able to do processing on the stream. So in this case, maybe the sale, that, that stream of sales from all the stores, 
the processing to compute inventory or some of the marketing or drive processing on top of that, those, um, you know, key technologies around, you know, maintaining the stream, connecting into different systems to get the data, running continuous processing, that's, that's what our platform Right. At the beginning, uh, we talked about uh, how long it took uh, the development process of uh, the initial version of Apache Kafka. From my own experience, software development usually does not uh, run, always run on a set deadlines because uh, there is a constant urge to improve and uh, grow on that platform. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, there's a saying I really like that we, we sometimes use internally, which is, uh, you know, we're not doing it because it's easy. We're doing it because we thought it was going to be easy. <laughs> um, and it's, it's similar in this area where, you know, we, we kind of thought this idea of really integrating real-time streaming, it, you know, we thought, okay, you know, we'll get a first version out, iterate on it a bit. Maybe it'll take a year or so to get fully rolled out. And then, of course, as you start to do this, and other companies start to adopt it. You realize some of the depths of the problem to really make the processing easy, really do this at high scale, you know, for Confluent, then it's been, you know, hey, provide this as a cloud service, just make it available to everybody on demand. Um, you know, the, the deeper you go, you, the more you realize there is to do. And that that's inherently the nature probably of any company or business, but, but certainly true of these software projects where there's a lot of depth to any good hard problem. Can you highlight how big of an opportunity is uh, event stream and processing and where in the adoption cycle are you in? And what kind of acceleration in terms of adoption should we expect? Yeah, uh, you know, so it was interesting when we were looking at this area originally at LinkedIn, it, you know, there, there had been some computer science papers about stream processing. And so this idea was out there, but it was seen as kind of a niche, like, hey, there, there could be some systems that would be very fast or very real time, but how common would that really be? Um, but, but our perspective was very different. And um, our perspective was, hey, like business is all kind of continuous in real time. So the natural way that data would flow in an organization, the natural way you would react to something happening would be continuously and as it happened. And the only reason you would not do that is because uh, you can't, there's some technological limitation. And indeed, when we looked at it, there was a whole set of technical limitations that had made this real-time area kind of more of a niche. And so, you know, some of the limitations were around scalability, some were around ease of use, some were around kind of transactional correctness, like the kind of key capabilities you would get out of a traditional database. Um, you know, th there was a whole set of things that had held it back and had made it a niche. But the fundamental problem is actually extremely general. It's kind of half the data problem. If you think about the ability to store and query data, that's what you need to build one application. But this streaming area is about how all the applications come together. And that second problem, I think in many ways, it's at the heart of the big questions in software architecture. A lot of the new development now is how do we put all these pieces together and how do you know all the different bits of software that comprise a company turn into one one big thing that all works coherently and correctly and, and so on. And so, you know, that was really our view. And I, I think increasingly that view has, you know, come into the mainstream among technologists who really view the streaming as kind of an overall paradigm shift in the data world. And so, you know, when we tried you know, to sketch this out for our IPO, we came up with an estimate of about a 60 billion total addressable market for, for data streaming, but it's new. 
And so like any new market, you know, the, the question is really, um, you know, how does that grow? What's included in it? What does it pull from? Um, and th that's always the interesting thing about any new market or category is there is no defined, you know, kind of incumbent. There's no defined existing product. Um, you know, each year it's a little bigger. And the idea of how big it will get is, of course, many different people's uh, opinion uh, about the slope of that curve. Right. When you have a piece of technology that is connected with open source, like uh, Confluent, which is uh, deeply connected with uh, Apache Kafka, there is always this big question that comes up, which is uh, what percentage of your solutions is open source and how much of it is uh, proprietary? Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, I, I would say particularly there's been, you know, a couple different iterations at building businesses around open source. So, you know, Red Hat was relatively successful just offering support. Um, you know, there, there were some other attempts, uh, things that were kind of half, halfway that and halfway some a bit of proprietary software. Um, I would say the modern incarnation of this is a little different. And, you know, the reason it's so different is because of the rise of the public cloud. And so increasingly, you know, the open source is like the version of the software you would take and run. But, the, um, you know, what people are consuming often when they're getting this from a vendor is something which is, you know, quite different. It may provide the same protocol and experience, but is actually built to run as a cloud service. And so, you know, the kind of backing architecture for our cloud service, you know, for the Kafka portion of that, there's a system called Quora which is really like a totally different piece of software that's actually built to be a cloud service that serves you know, ten, tens of thousands of these you know, uh, clusters and use cases and runs at massive scale across the major clouds. And that's, of course, very different from a piece of software that's meant to be downloaded and installed and you know, be easy to run by the, the customer themselves. And so you know, that's an area where you can provide quite a lot of differentiation. And a real advantage in the total cost of ownership, if you think about it from the point of view of you know, the customer with any of these big data systems, they're doing it themselves with the open source. Of course, the open source bit is free, but there's a fair amount of software that gets built around it. You end up buying, of course, um, you know, uh, cloud resources to operate that system. And then you end up hiring a team to run it, right? And so the ability to get something that's kind of truly elastic and available as a service, you can get something that both has better, you know, features and capabilities, but is also just overall net cheaper because you're no longer, you know, hiring a team just to run it for you. You're no longer buying, you know, a set of cloud infrastructure just used for you. You know, this can, there's, you know, very significant, um, you know, kind of efficiencies that come out of the scale of doing that across many, many customers. And, um, you know, we, we've walked through previously some of the attempts to kind of quantify that, but you know, if you think about just the operational side, just the people, you know, probably the advantage in operations for us in running our cloud service versus customers that we might support in their data centers doing it themselves, you know, it's probably about, you know, a thousand to one. Uh, so it's quite significant in terms of what that advantage is. So then you can build something that's, you know, kind of better and faster and cheaper. And that's definitely a, a product that, that people like. And that's why I think these, you know, kind of cloud services that have built around, you know, open standards have been so successful. I'll come back to some of those points uh, a bit later. 
I believe uh, when you started out, uh, you had never thought of the opportunity that was likely to emerge from Internet of Things, or to put it plainly, all the Internet-connected sensors and devices that we see today in our cars, in our homes, in our gardens, and at our doors. How big is the IoT-related opportunity for you, and how far are you in monetizing that? Yeah, yeah, it's actually quite significant. So, uh, and you're quite right. That was not something we'd originally intended. Um, but I think it turns out when you try and solve, you know, a problem in the most general way possible, you end up solving a bunch of other problems that you didn't even think of. It's one of the nice things about, um, you know, kind of coming up with these basic platforms is they try and solve the, the problem in the most reusable way possible. And then you end up finding a lot of other use cases you would imagine. And so, yeah, it turns out that the problem of, Reacting to something that happened in a piece of software in a different part of the organization is very similar to the problem of reacting to something that happened out in the real world. Uh, you know, both from the point of view of a software system or some little bit of data about what occurred. You know, the bit of data may be a little different depending on what the thing is, but it doesn't really matter where it came from. And so if you're building applications that react to systems out in the world, you know, that ends up having a lot of similarities to building, you know, reaction to other software applications. And so we see this in, you know, logistics applications, you know, a bunch of companies that are putting together software systems with some view of what's happening in their business out in the factory, out in the warehouse, out, you know, wherever it is with the drivers, um, you know, and all of those then allow them to put together things they know in the software with things happening, you know, out in reality and, and make smarter, more intelligent decisions off of that, integrate that back into some new or better customer experience, drive improvements in efficiency or quality, you know, kind of depends on the domain. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a quite significant opportunity. You know, I, my view on what's happening in companies is to some extent, you know, software is going from being something that was almost like a single cell organism where each application kind of stood alone to something that's kind of multicellular and spans all the parts of the company, the parts that were purely digital, but also now these parts that are not purely digital, but have some digital component. And so you can see a company now is having almost some kind of, you know, exoskeleton of, of software that backs what's going on, you know, and connects all the different parts of it. And then, you know, our, our goal is really kind of be the central nervous system that takes all those impulses of what happened over here, what happened over there, you know, let you react to those as those occur, really stitch the different parts of, of the organism together in that account. Clearly, we are in exciting times uh, where we see a lot of debate about the course of enterprise data flow and the software architecture that you talked about. Can you connect the dots uh, in terms of how much of enterprise data will shift to real-time streaming versus batch processing? Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard to do this quantitatively with anything that's kind of in the middle of happening, right? Like any of the big paradigm shifts or transitions. Our view is probably, you know, somewhere between a third and half of what companies do is in that kind of asynchronous domain, right? Some of that today is batch processing that's becoming more real-time. Some of it is new use cases that are coming to bear. Some of this is kind of existing use and abuse of older databases that are, that are kind of coming into that. But, but yeah, I think somewhere between a third and half is probably a reasonable view of what ought to be in this kind of, you know, streaming domain as it, as it really comes to maturity and has, you know, the full set of people who know about it, the full feature set, et cetera, that you would get out of traditional databases. I believe a lot has 
transitioned in the data infrastructure layer since the days of Hadoop and uh, key value-based architecture. Can you take us through how things were then and how things are today and how things will look in a few years from now? Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say the, um, the, there, there was a really almost funny uh, evolution in the database world, right? So stored data where, it, you know, maybe starting in on the roughly 2010, there was a movement towards really addressing scale. And part of that was stripping out a lot of features from databases. So you had these very complete single server databases, uh, you know, relational databases that were built to really bring together all the capabilities you might need for modeling data. I would say that the movement in databases for a period of time was towards kind of NoSQL, like throw away a lot of the features of a traditional database and make something that could scale really easily and elastically. And it turns out that scalability is actually quite a valuable property. If you have something you can really just use like a utility that can, you know, you can use more and more of, it's very predictable. Um, that's great. But of course, stripping out all those valuable features made it a lot harder to build applications. And so I would say the movement maybe in the last, you know, call it eight years, uh, you know, since then has been putting all the features back in. And you would see kind of the, the probably newest set of databases mostly uh, have kind of come back to SQL, you know, at least as one of the options. Um, and so, you know, that, that's been one dimension has been like, hey, coping with scale. And that kind of SQL to NoSQL to back to SQL again transition. The other dimension of change has been, yeah, the movement to the cloud. And, you know, this, there's just fundamentally a very big difference between a system that was, um, you know, built to run in a data center and be installed and managed by the customer and something that's like a real cloud native data, data service. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It's often hard to explain why that's so different. Like, it, at a high level, you know, the difference between something like Snowflake and the difference between, you know, Teradata, they're kind of the same. They're both scalable SQL layers for processing data. Like, what's the difference? But, you know, that ability to just consume on demand what you need, have it scale up, have the resources all there, have it all run for you. It solves so many of the, you know, usability aspects of data processing in the data warehousing space that it just really kind of changed the game. And I, I think that's happening you know, across the data landscape. And, you know, a big change uh, that comes along with that is suddenly it's a lot easier to adopt new data systems because the operational side of these systems goes away. So one of the big pressures on innovation in the world of data was, hey, we don't want too many of these different data systems and databases because we're going to have to hire special DBAs to run them all. And that's really no longer true. Of course, in the cloud, you can adopt many of these that are run by some cloud provider that, you know, scales that across, um, you know, many customers as we do so that that cost of operation is kind of, you know, done in a much more efficient way and amortized. So those are the first two dimensions. The third dimension, I would say, is what we're trying to do. And this has been the whole movement from, you know, kind of stored data as the primary paradigm to adding now streaming data, you know, the things that are changing the kind of data in motion uh, to go along with the data at rest. And so I think that's the, the third big change. It's probably the newest to really kind of hit the mainstream, but um, you know has a really exciting ecosystem of tools and thinking and use cases that have got along with it, and I think is is you know really important when you combine it with the diversity that we're seeing in data that kind of came out of the explosion of cloud 
You know, now in many organizations, there's many different data stores, often one per application or microservice. There's often many SaaS services, which are themselves a sort of data store. You know, if you use some enterprise application, it has some important bit of data about the company. Somehow all of those parts have to come together. And this is really the role streaming has played is that ability to tap into all these things, react to what's happening in that application over there, or this application over here, and be able to really build applications that span all that. Shifting gears a little bit, who are your target customers? And is there a way we can break down the adoption levels by industry groups or verticals? Yeah, yeah, this has been really interesting. So for this kind of basic data technology, it's less... Uh, Industry is less the important dimension. Actually, the more important dimension is, you know, for a given set of companies, how tech savvy are they? And the progress for us has been from more tech savvy companies to less tech savvy companies over time. And so the original user base was kind of this, you know, Silicon Valley, pure tech companies, right? Very technically capable. Um, and then, you know, going away from that, you actually, interestingly, in each industry, you see adoption by the largest companies and the smallest companies in each industry, and you kind of push to the middle. And why is that true? Well, it's, you know, in the biggest companies, they have a significant investment in technology and a fair amount of capability there. The smallest companies in the space are often these kind of tech disruptors, right? So, you know, if I, if I think about financial services, we'll have these fintech companies that are kind of trying to rebuild it from scratch. We'll have big banks that are in really seriously investing in the digital capabilities. And then we work our way through to the kind of mid-level, you know, national bank uh, that probably has a lower investment in technology. And so that's actually the progress we've seen is, you know, fairly broad across geographies, across types of companies, but kind of pushing into the middle, you know, from both the top and bottom at the same time. I was listening to the Confluent uh, current event uh, that took place a few weeks back, and uh, we heard uh, quite a few announcements coming from there. Can you highlight a few things that you are most excited about and what opportunities you foresee in them? Yeah, yeah, there was a couple of major areas that we, you know, were adding functionality in. You know, one of those is the core of our Kafka offering. I, I described already the system Cora. And that's all about making it you know, better and faster and more cost-effective, all things that absolutely matter to users of this kind of system and you know, big, um, you know, big advances in that area. The next area was around the um, governance of, of streaming data. You know, governance is a thing that sounds a little boring, but you know, fundamentally our goal is to connect up all the parts of a company. And to do that, you know, it's both about solving the infrastructure problems of getting data around but also solving the problems of correctness, you know, compliance. Are you using the data in the right way? Does it actually mean what you think? Can you find the thing that you need? If you don't solve those problems, then of course the infrastructure doesn't help you. And there's been some thinking in the data world about governance, but very little of it takes into account streaming as the thing that plugs everything together. So really bringing the governance world to streaming has been a big thing for us. And then uh, advances in stream processing. So we brought an open source technology called Flink, this is another uh, very popular open source uh, product, you know, probably roughly, you know, roughly comparable to Kafka popularity and, and certainly the second most popular thing in the streaming space. We brought that into our offering and that does, you know, some of the processing on top of the kind of raw stream in, in Kafka. And it's a very powerful technology that's built, a, you know, very passionate 
um, you know, and sophisticated user base that is probably doing the most advanced thinking about this type of real-time streaming application. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, no conference would be complete without some announcements around AI. And so we, um, you know, we announced some of the integration to enable uh, taking streaming data and using it for uh, applications that use large language models, you know, integration into vector databases, integration into some of the other technologies that cloud service providers have, have offered. Um, you know, this is obviously a kind of key use case for us right now where a lot of our customers are you know, trying to build uh, on these large language models. They need to be able to tap into the data they have, kind of get it into the right form, make it available to these models uh, so that you can ask questions that combine the kind of general purpose knowledge that the language model has with the specific up-to-date information about the enterprise that is the reason that you're hosting it instead of them just going to you know, chat GPT or something like that. And that, that, that's kind of a very common use case. It's motivating a fair amount of data flow and, and changes in data architecture right now. Like you said, AI remains a hot topic. What is the opportunity for Confluent there? Do you see a big acceleration in terms of adoption levels of Confluent uh, as the AI workloads grow? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a tailwind. You know, I would say the kind of production enterprise uses of AI are still early. You know, our most sophisticated customers are doing really interesting things. And so, you know, um, at the conference, we uh, had a conversation with some folks from uh, Notion, which is like an enterprise wiki that has really cool AI features built in, and, and they use Confluent as part of the overall architecture for that. Um, but, you know, this is something that's still getting adopted in a lot of businesses as they, you know, work through a more complex set of systems, often a more complex compliance regime. Um, and I, I think holds a lot of promise. So I think we're going to see some pretty exciting stuff if our customers are uh, any indication uh, over the year to come as some of this stuff makes its way out into, you know, either impacting the efficiency of businesses or, or directly interacting with customers in different ways. For the next few minutes, uh, maybe we can focus on the recent uh, results, which I see came below where the street was expecting, at least in terms of 24 outlook. Yeah. I have a multi-part question on this. One, what is driving that slowdown? Two, are there any verticals you would like to call out behind that softness? And uh, three, when should we see a reacceleration, and what will drive that? Yeah, yeah, I think that, um, you know, we, we have felt some impact overall. Uh, probably all the peer companies, our space have taken some reset at some point this year. And this is, this is the time period for us on that. Um, you know, it manifests for us as probably similar ways to a lot of the other kind of cloud SaaS companies where um, there's just a slowdown in the number of net new software projects of any type being built. And, um, you know, that's ultimately the, the flow into us of what will be integrated into Confluent, what will drive consumption. Um, where is that most uh, significant? It's probably most significant in the tech sector, which probably has the most, you know, severe focus on optimization, kind of largest cuts in headcount, um, you know, just far fewer things being done there and more focused on, uh, you know, money saving. So that, that that's the overall driver that we've seen over the course of this year. And that definitely impacts, um, you know, our Q3 results were uh, reasonably good, but as we head into next year, that was, you know, impacting the velocity that we were uh, providing, you know, guidance and outlook on. 
And so, yeah, that, you know, that's definitely a force that I think all of us are kind of working through. As we think about the progress, you know, coming out of next year, I do think there's some tailwinds, you know, so we're expecting some of these AI applications to have impact. We're expecting some of this product functionality that I described to start to move the needle for us on revenue. Um, and then, you know, for us, uh, one that we, you know, I hadn't talked about was just kind of being able to access some of the more regulated um, industries or areas. So some of the public sector use cases, uh, you know, some of the use in financial services, which tend to come with a much more significant security regime. So there's investments that, that we have to access that. You know, all of those are definitely tailwinds, um, you know, kind of as we exit next year. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think this has been a, you know, thing for the larger cloud providers as well as all the other, um, you know, SaaS independent ISV cloud services is just the focus over the course of this, you know, this last year and heading into next year is still very much on using what you've got more effectively and less on, you know, large new investments. Coming back to the technology angle, which is what's, uh, what is exciting. We are seeing new platforms uh, and companies emerge in this space. What do you have to say about uh, Apache Pulsar and uh, companies like Red Panda? And how does uh, Apache Kafka or Confluent differentiate against those? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's really been an explosion of interesting tech and open source projects that are either directly comparable to Kafka or are you know, stream processing layers or layers around or on top or that help connect into other systems uh, in a streaming way. So, so the whole ecosystem has grown. You know, I, I think it's largely net positive for us uh, in how we integrate, but there's certainly some direct competitors that are going right after uh, Kafka in our business. So, you know, I would say the change we've seen probably over the last three or four years is I think everybody is kind of now agrees that the Kafka protocol is the lingua franca of streaming data. And so the kind of early systems were quite diverse in how they tried to do this. You know, the cloud providers would have systems like Kinesis, which is kind of similar to Kafka, but incompatible. You know, something like Pulsar is kind of an independent open source product. But at the end of the day, it was like, look, Kafka has more than, you know, 90% market share by almost any analysis and is kind of outgrowing these other things. And so I think that's kind of largely fallen away. Now there's other folks who are, um, you know, trying to build implementations of Kafka's protocol in different ways. Um, you know, that, that's kind of natural. Any market, as it gets big, you'll have competitors. I think what we've done uh, that's unique is really try and do this in the way that's, you know, the, the most complete, that brings together the whole platform for streaming, that does it across the whole set of environments that companies operate in, you know, across the three major clouds, out into the on-premise environment so that we can kind of access some of the systems there. Um, and then in a way that actually connects all that together. And that's that's kind of the uh, key thing in the streaming world. And so those are the, um, you know, the, those are the dimensions that we would differentiate on that, you know, like kind of true cloud native service, like complete streaming platform, including the processing and connectors and governance, and then the ability to do it everywhere across all these environments. And I, I think those are kind of the winning, you know, set of criteria in this space. But, you know, I think one of the exciting things is it's a space that's playing out now and it's growing very quickly. So there, there may be room for, um, you know, many companies to innovate in different ways and, and solve parts of the problem. I want to touch a bit on the market motion. Can you talk about 
how you are approaching sales. How do you segment your target customers and what percentage of your revenues is driven by in-house sales versus self-service versus partners and hyperscalers? Yeah. Um, yeah, those are all great questions. So, so yeah, we're, um, you know, we, we're selling globally uh, in a very large number of countries across uh, Europe, um, APAC, the U.S., of course, the rest of Americas. Um, you know, we, we had divided our team up into kind of commercial, which is smaller companies and enterprise accounts, which are larger. Um, you know, the, the, within that, we do kind of group together some of the financial services customers and the tech customers as they tend to have some similarities versus the rest of everybody else. Um, and then we, you know, we haven't broken out uh, details like, um, you know, breakdown by industry or um, the breakdown of, you know, dollars from self-service versus direct sales versus cloud service providers. For us, though, actually, we see it as more a journey. You know, it's not so much that any customer is purely self-service. Um, you know, if we're successful with them, they might land their first use case self-service. But as this becomes something that connects many parts of the company and turns into like a serious data platform, there's usually some relationship and interaction, you know, as it comes to scale. Uh, and so we, we kind of view it as a journey where we want to land for one thing you know, get the right streams of data and serve that use case. And then often those streams of data are useful for other applications that kind of connect in and become part of that platform and other applications and so on. So kind of, you know, I talked a little bit about growing into that central nervous system. We don't want to do it all at once. Like it sounds hard to install a whole central nervous system. We want to do it one application at a time. And those applications will come through, you know, um, you know, motion that comprises both some self-service you know, usage by the customer where they just build the new thing and hook it up and some sales driven stuff where we're working with them on critical things. And when we put that together well, that's when we do the best. All right. That brings me to one big question on uh, strategy and uh, vision going forward. You started this company with uh, two other co-founders in 2014, and uh, you are probably touching today with uh, 3,000 employees. And I believe that adds enormous number of challenges as well as a lot of opportunities to foresee. I'm curious to know how you are thinking through the management team and leadership path going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, in many ways, it's it's a huge asset. You know, the, the challenge and what we were trying to do early on is we only had five or six people and we were trying to solve a really big problem for all the companies in the world. So it's actually been a great thing to have more people who are passionate about this all working on it. But the, um, you know, that, that does come with challenges in building, you know, a company that's durable and a culture that's strong, um, you know, probably particularly in an environment where a lot of the folks are remote and, you know, have to have a way that they get together in person as well as working independently. You know, how you do that, I, I feel like there's no, um, there's no magic trick. Uh, you know, it's a set of practices that try to ensure that there's a consistent culture and set of values that people believe in, that people in leadership roles, you know, follow a common set of principles that um, you agree on what's important and what the strategy is, and that translates into action and a set of OKRs and goals that everybody works against. Um, you know, those systems all um, change and develop as the organization gets bigger, but to some extent, it's the same problem when you have a hundred people as when you have, you know, a few thousand. 
uh, you just have to figure out how to scale those uh, individual systems, provide you know, the lump that's autonomous has to get a little bigger so that you can kind of scale to a larger group. Um, you have to get a little bit more scientific as the business becomes more diverse and has more segments. But those kind of fundamental things actually don't change that much. You know, kind of a lot of it comes down to good management, good communication, you know, the, the kind of common set of things that every company works on. And I always think those are less of a, um, you know, it's less of something you know than a kind of practice, right? It's like, you know, carpentry or any other skill that you build and, and uh, participate in uh, to try and make it successful. All right. Uh, one last uh, question before I move to my final section. Where do you see Confluent in five years in terms of customers or revenues or profitability? Yeah, well, you know, uh, the big goal for us is really kind of grow in, into this role that we've set out for ourselves, right? We want to be the central nervous system of all these companies. We want to connect across the different states of data, the kind of operational applications that they built, the enterprise applications, the analytics world, really allow them to harness data in any of those and then build a whole ecosystem ourselves uh, on top of that that um, yeah, has a bunch of technologies that are built in a native way for streaming and tap into that. And that includes a lot of other companies that are you know, building around this ecosystem that we want to help make successful. And if we do that, I think that's a really rich world that where we can continue to grow our business, you know, both the components we have as well as some of these up the stack capabilities, as well as take that out to the you know, broader set of uh, customers as we kind of continue that progress from, you know, the most technical to the least technical companies that probably every new technology goes through. All right. My last section, which I define as quick three. So these are all quick one-liners. So the first one is, uh, can you unpack the story behind the name Confluent? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's about uh, the coming together of different streams. And so, uh, you know, the Confluence or Confluent is, you know, uh, often the um, used in relative to streams and about things coming together. And so we were like, oh, that's that's very similar to what we're trying to do. We're trying to turn all the data into streams and make them all come together in some kind of central platform. Right. What is the one thing that gets you excited in the technology space today? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I still wake up extremely excited about the project that we set out to start the company for. I mean, a lot of the applications of this have grown. We talked about the IoT stuff. We talked about the AI stuff. But fundamentally, like the world of data is is going through a bit of a renaissance right now. And I feel incredibly lucky that we're, you know, a big part of that. It's kind of one of those big three changes I talked about. You know, I think that, um, that to some extent, maybe every area of technology goes through phases where, you know, I think there's some kind of punctuated equilibrium. There's a period of time where there's very fast evolution and lots of interesting stuff happening. Then maybe it dies down and, you know, not much happens for, for a decade or so. That's certainly true in the data space where, you know, there's a period of time where database world was maybe a bit sleepy. We kind of had the systems and they weren't changing much. And now the data world has changed a lot over the last 10 years. And I, I think it's been really fun to be part of that. And I think there's a little bit more juice left in that, a little bit more evolution still happening before it gets boring again. All right. My last question. What piece of technology keeps you up at night? Oh, uh, well, it depends on how you mean. Um, you know, I the thing I've been most excited to kind of study up on, and I don't, I don't know if this is as much a worry as it is just learning about it, has been the progress in AI. You know, what, what brought me into computer science was... AI and machine learning. And that was something I studied when I was in school and 
a lot of my early work was on kind of using data for that. And then eventually over time, ended up more in the infrastructure layer because that was the, the problem at the time that needed to be solved to make any of that stuff work. But um, yeah, it's been incredibly exciting for me just to watch what's happening, I, I guess, as it is for everybody. But like even my master's thesis was on these, you know, machine learning algorithms and applying them to geographical data. And so it's, it's been cool to watch some of that develop. Um, it's been surprising to me how it develops, very different from what I would have predicted, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but nonetheless, uh, pretty exciting. And that's definitely one of the areas I, I try and stay up on uh, as I watch what's happening. Wonderful. Jay, thank you very much for coming on to our podcast. You provided great insights and I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Really happy to do it.